It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of body horror, drug use, suicide, and discussions of domestic violence. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Edward hated theater, like really hated it, but he loved Anthea, and when it was her turn to choose the location of their next date, she said they were going to see Aladdin. So he went. He had to admit, the new Amsterdam was beautiful, all red, gold, and classical murals. She'd gotten them front row mezzanine tickets, so it was a great view but he couldn't help feel a little unsteady as they walked down the steps to their seats. He was reading the playbill when Anthea decided it would be better to buy her merch now, skip the line at intermission. He wanted to point out that it would be marked up, but he bit his tongue. This was her night. He led her out to the aisle. As he settled back into a seat, he felt a tap on his shoulder. A woman was standing there in a slinky green dress. Her vintage headdress made her look like some strange bird. He stood up to get out of her way, leaning against the balcony railing, but she only smiled at him, asking if he was excited for the show. He tried to muster up a half-hearted yes. She laughed whimsically. She always dragged her husband to these things, she told him. He much preferred the moving pictures, Wow, Edward thought. This girl is really committed to this whole flapper thing. He confessed theaters made him a bit nervous. He didn't like the dark, and he didn't like heights. She told him he didn't need to be afraid. She'd protect him. She stepped forward, and he stepped back on instinct. He could feel his body begin to fall, the railing behind him too low for his tall frame, He flailed, trying to catch himself. She grabbed his shirt at the last moment, pulling him in close. He opened his mouth to say something. But then Anthea was there at the top of the stairs. He rushed to her, beginning to make excuses. But she only looked at him quizzically. He turned back towards the railing, where their seats were. The flapper girl was gone. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. 
let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to New Amsterdam Theater, a New York City landmark, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. When it opened on October 26, 1903, the New Amsterdam Theater was like nothing New York City had ever seen. Designed by famed architects Henry Hertz and Hugh Talent, the New Amsterdam towers over 42nd Street in Times Square. The surprisingly slim Beaux-Arts facade can only fit three windows across its 10-floor office tower. But what it lacks in size, it makes up in grandeur. The theater is filled with marble wall sculptures of Shakespearean, Wagnerian, and fairy tale characters and is an iconic example of the Art Nouveau style. It's no surprise that the New Amsterdam was quickly termed the House Beautiful by the New York Press. But the New Amsterdam didn't truly become an icon until impresario and innovator Florence Ziegfeld acquired the building. It was to be the home of his famous Ziegfeld Follies, a musical extravaganza featuring comedy and dance. The Follies were known for their flashy sets and their even flashier chorus girls. To be a Follies girl was to be worshipped as a sex symbol by the adoring public. Many silent-era sirens got their start at the Follies, or their more risque equivalent, the Ziegfeld Midnight Frolic. No Follies girl left a larger impression than Olive Thomas, a showgirl and cinema ingenue. After meeting a truly horrifying end, she seems to have returned to the New Amsterdam for an eternal encore. Olive had come a long way from Charleroi, Pennsylvania. She wasn't Oliveretta Elaine Duffy anymore. She was no longer some divorcee who moved to Manhattan with big dreams. She was the most beautiful girl in New York City. The contest said so. Artists came knocking, begging her to sit for them, to take off her clothes, to offer her beauty to the world. She felt special, and for the first time, she felt secure. Just when she had been getting bored with playing artists' muse, Mr. Ziegfeld came calling. She contained her blush. To be a Follies girl would be everything to her. She knew nothing about dancing, but she could learn. She was a quick study in all things. All things. Mr. Ziegfeld said she would be a true showgirl, but he clicked his tongue. She was too green. She needed to learn from the best, and the best girls worked the midnight frolic. Olive wasn't the type of girl to know what a midnight frolic was. She wasn't rich. She wasn't worldly. She knew it took place on a rooftop garden, though. It sounded idyllic. A little Eden with Ziegfeld's dancers embodying Eve. But she soon learned a different truth. They must be Eve and the serpent, pure and tempting all at once. 
To better aid in this aim, Mr. Ziegfeld completely transformed the rooftop garden, allowing for a seating area, dancing, and a full-size movable stage with the most impressive lighting money could buy. But it was the glass runway connected to the stage that was the Frolic's true claim to fame. The glass runway was an architectural marvel made from panels of clear glass bolted together. It was essentially a catwalk above the tables, allowing the guests below to view the girls in their entirety. The railings on the side of the runway were thin, but sturdy enough for a dancer to wrap her leg over them, hanging down precariously to wave at the crowd below. Olive had never dreamed of climbing across a see-through walkway so high above the streets of New York. In the middle of a performance with spotlights glittering on her, she felt like she was floating on air, her fingertips grazing the heavens as the mortals watched her from below. She ascended each night, then stepped down those glass stairs to pass through the crowds of rich men and wealthy women on her way to the stage her stage. It was all for her. She flitted through the audience, flirting with men in the finest suits and complimenting the women on their jewelry. The garden's jasmine and roses fought the stench of cigar smoke. It was a space made for elegance and revelry. So the woman who appeared at the edge of the walkway was out of place. Her face had been wiped clean of makeup. Her hair was tied for bed. She wore a nightgown that was far too modest for a place as glamorous as Mr. Ziegfeld's rooftop theater. Olive was now on the stairs leading up to the stage. She looked out into the crowd. She waited for sighs of annoyance or the cluck of disapproving tongues. Perhaps one of the society wives had come in search of her husband, unhinged jealous, preparing to throw herself off in front of all these people. Olive laughed to herself, dryly. The runway was high enough for the fall to be painful, but certainly not fatal. Pathetic, really. Pointless. In any case, no one was interested in the woman teetering on the edge of eternity. They were all staring at Olive instead, as it should be, she thought as it should be. But Olive couldn't concentrate. The trespasser was so pale, she seemed to glow in the stage lights. She had turned her back to the stage. Her shoulders were hunched, like she was crying. Olive heard the sobs as if they were in her own ears. She hardly paid any attention as she and the other dancers assembled on stage, beginning a kick line. The sobs sounded less than human, like garbled gasps and whimpers as they made their way up the woman's windpipe. Why wasn't anyone helping this poor woman? Would Mr. Ziegfeld punish them if they were out of step, if the illusion of beautiful perfection was broken because someone needed help? There was no injury in Eden, no illness or death. Olive looked left and right. None of the other dancers were paying the girl any attention. Was this the level of impassive professionalism Mr. Ziegfeld demanded? 
Olive worried that the other woman was dying. She took the initiative. She stepped out of the kick line, ascending the catwalk. The other dancers might know something was wrong, but the audience wouldn't. And that was what mattered to Mr. Ziegfeld. She would make it up to him. Olive's hips swayed to the music, even when it had faded from her ears. All she could hear now was the woman's distress, her ragged breathing and body-shaking sobs. Olive didn't get along with other women. They tended not to like her, not trusting her around their husbands or sons, wary that she would steal them away. But somehow, some strange force compelled Olive to love this woman with her whole heart. She did not know why, and she feared she did not know how to do so. But she loved her. She needed her to be all right, to know that things would change. She suddenly felt more precarious than she had ever felt on the walkway. Her walkway was hers no longer. The wind tugged at her exposed skin. Olive was finally close enough to reach out. She gently tapped the woman's shoulder. The woman turned. The face that looked back at her was achingly familiar. It was her own. Olive stared at Olive, high above the city that never sleeps. She was crying, and her counterpart was crying too. The crowd watched below with bated breath, trying to understand this strange new amusement, this single chorus girl standing above them all. Olive watched as her doppelganger gathered the skirt of her nightgown in one pale hand. She smiled at her other self, feeling the wind in her hair and the cool glass beneath her feet. Then, the doppelganger fell Olive cried out in terror, but then she had to regain her composure. With horror, she realized that no one else was reacting. Down below, there was no body. Somehow, she had imagined the whole thing. Ziegfeld's Midnight Frolic was part nightclub and part theatrical workshop. Many performances that would eventually end up on the massive proscenium stage below were developed on the theater's roof. Comedians like Will Rogers, Eddie Cantor, and the iconic Fanny Bryce were given gigs upstairs before coming down to the big audiences. But the Frolic's true claim to fame was its burlesque-style numbers, half witty banter, and half striptease. The Follies girls assigned to the frolic were expected to walk along a glass walkway above the patrons' heads. Their costumes sometimes had balloons attached to them that could be popped by male customers' cigars. Model-turned-chorus girl Olive Thomas seems to have thrived in this environment. Rumors swirled about her romantic ties to politicians, celebrities, and titans of industry, including Ziegfeld himself. And it was even said that a European ambassador gave her a $10,000 necklace. 
But it wouldn't be a tycoon that stole Olive's heart. Hollywood beckoned. And while there, she would meet the love of her life. Less than four years later, she died in his arms in one of silent era Hollywood's first scandals. Up next, Olive discovers the true nature of the specter she saw on the walkway. Now, back to the story. Olive began her career by winning an ad contest for the most beautiful girl in New York City in 1914. She would appear on several magazine covers and model for painters Harrison Fisher, Raphael Kirshner, and Haskell Coffin. But her most notable modeling gig was as the muse of Alberto Vargas. His painting of her topless and clutching a rose hung in Ziegfeld's office at the New Amsterdam until the theater closed down during the Great Depression. Two years later, Olive made her film debut in a serial called Beatrice Fairfax. Olive's rise was meteoric. She was known for both her femme fatale and cross-dressing roles. In 1920, she was the first actress to play a flapper in a leading role. Olive met Jack Pickford, the brother of film titan Mary Pickford, shortly after starring in her first film for Paramount. It was love at first, drunken all-nighter. Mary and the rest of the Pickford family didn't approve of Olive and Jack's tumultuous union. The relationship was a near constant cycle of public arguments and absurdly expensive apology gifts that were often destroyed shortly after due to their inebriated exploits. Mary recounted in her 1955 memoir that she considered Jack and Olive to be children playing together during their marriage. But she grew to regret not taking the situation more seriously after Olive's untimely death at the age of 25. Olive's head was pounding. Her ears were ringing. Her feet were bleeding. The champagne didn't help. Neither did the ghastly fight she and Jack had just had. But she loved her job. And she loved Jack, even after long days on set and even longer fights with him. His family hated her. Sometimes he hated her. But the second the camera turned on, she was the focus of the world. Every now and then Jack would sneak on set and she would catch him falling in love with her through the lens. The searing lights caressing her skin making her dark ringlets glow. She was a star. Everyone wanted her, but she only wanted him. Or at least that's what she told him. It was better that way. When the camera stopped rolling and the costumes were stripped away, it was just the two of them. There was joy and pain, anger and regret. She bought him a car to apologize for a drunken tirade. He crashed it. They took a second honeymoon in Paris. He sipped champagne from her slippers. The group of artists that they were with found him charming, but they were dismissive of her. So she did what she had to to get their attention. She went swimming fully dressed in a nearby fountain. The crowd loved it. Jack didn't. 
He yanked her out of the fountain and made hasty excuses. They fought the entire way back to the hotel. Her shoes cut into her feet, leaving little drops of blood on the back of her white heels. Jack headed straight for the liquor cabinet, and Olive charged into the bathroom. She cleaned the blood and grime from the back of her feet. She looked at her expression in the mirror, missing the vanity lights of the dressing rooms at the theater. She hadn't needed to steal attention there. Everyone wanted to look at her. When she felt low, she remembered this. The New Amsterdam, the Follies, the Frolic, where she was loved, worshipped, adored. She could always go back. That's what Mr. Ziegfeld had said. She always had a home at the New Amsterdam. Cold crept over her. A cold she couldn't explain on this sticky Parisian night. She looked to the window to confirm it was closed. But when she looked back, her breath caught in her throat. Her reflection was translucent. The veins in her neck bulged. The olive in the mirror opened her mouth in a silent scream. Olive moved her hands to her neck, but the skin was smooth. She was just tired and drunk. But she could see the vanity lights now. The bright bulb was circling the mirror, like strange mounted candles. The light in them surged until they burst, one by one. Tiny shards of glass rained down like confetti around her. She put her hands on the countertop to steady herself and felt tiny slivers bite into her skin. Slowly, she pulled the fragments out, but her fingers were disappearing in front of her eyes. She pinched herself, sure that she'd fallen asleep, but it didn't help. Her fingers continued to fade in and out of existence. She shut her eyes, willing things to return to normal. She was drunk. She was tired. Perhaps even a little high. Slowly finding her courage, she opened her eyes once again. She was solid, at least. But now, something else was wrong. Dark, heavy lashes perfectly painted lips, pounds of white powder on her face. She knew this look. She was done up for a performance in Mr. Ziegfeld's rooftop garden. She was no longer the sad mess of smudged makeup and tears in a Paris apartment. She admired her past self for a moment, heard the knock of the stage manager and the excited whisper of five minutes till curtain. If this was some drug-induced haze, she was all right with it. The sound of breaking glass came from outside the room. Jack was up. Olive slipped for a moment on the slick surface of the bathroom floor, only barely catching herself. She looked down to the sink. The glass from the bulbs had disappeared, but the blood still stained her fingertips. Her reflection had shifted again, back to what it should have been all along. Her face flushed with anger, mascara dripping down her cheeks in a crooked line, faded lipstick. She practiced her smile several times. When it looked genuine enough, she left the comfort of the bathroom and headed back toward the bedroom. But Jack had disappeared. 
a half-empty glass of whiskey, the only sign that he'd been there at all. She was tired of pretending. She was tired of apologizing for her personality, for wanting attention. And most of all, she was tired of fighting with her husband. Something needed to change. She had a feeling it would, though she couldn't explain it. A sleeping solution was what she needed. In the morning, clearer heads would prevail. She'd apologize, even though she wouldn't mean it. He'd accept her words. They'd be fine. She took a large slug from the bottle. Something was wrong. She could feel the liquid burning her throat immediately. She managed to strangle, oh God, before words deserted her entirely. As hard as she tried to speak, she could only croak out sounds that bore the smallest resemblance to words. Jack was by her side, but she couldn't explain. The pain was spreading, burning down her chest and tearing through her stomach. She fell to the floor. He needed some sort of answer from her, so she pointed to the bottle. She couldn't hear his voice over the rushing of blood in her ears, but she could see the color drain from his face. It told her all she needed to know. She was dying. Panic welled in her hollow chest. She struggled to bring in a breath. The burning was spreading to her limbs now. She was a collection of inflamed nerves, unable to think beyond the pain. And then, she was somewhere else entirely. A bright spotlight burned her eyes as she stood on a glass walkway. She tried to speak, but no words made it through her raw throat. She brought her hands to her neck, trying to hold the pain inside. It was bursting through her skin. Her veins popped beneath her fingertips. A large patch of flesh dropped onto the glass below her high-heeled feet. A stabbing sensation pierced her back. She doubled over, her legs breaking like a ballerina doll pushed too far in one direction. The croaks of pain tumbled through her useless throat. Somewhere in the distance, she heard applause. People were watching her. She smiled, trying to fight through the pain. Larger patches of skin fell from her body, falling toward the audience, only to disappear on the way down. She tried to force her legs up. The bones began to knit themselves together with golden threads. Someone in the crowd whistled. She stood on newly formed legs and winked at the crowd. Another awful sensation was stabbing through her neck, but she would not be denied this opportunity. This was the kind of attention she always craved, something that Jack rarely provided. Her voice came back slowly, the slightest human sound. Then another. She quoted Shakespeare, made it raunchy, but cute. The audience laughed and smiled at her. Jack was there again. They were in some sort of white room. The spotlight was starting to fade. Olive reached for the fading light, clawing outward with all her strength. Her body came apart on stage. Her jaw fell to the ground. 
All of her limbs went in different directions, twisting her torso around. The pain was unbearable. But the audience smiled at her, laughed. How funny she was, how charming and coy. The Ziegfeld girl, the queen of the follies, goddess of the frolic, dancing in her palace on top of the world. As her bones reformed, one small sound cut through the haze, a cry of anguish from the other side. But Olive didn't care about Jack's cries. Something had changed. She had her adoring public now. She was home. By 1920, Olive Thomas and Jack Pickford's already stormy marriage had been dashed on the rocks. Both of them were constantly traveling, and they decided to take a second honeymoon in Paris in order to reconnect. On September 5th, 1920, Jack and Olive spent the evening carousing in Montparnasse, a neighborhood in Paris. They returned to their accommodations at the Hotel Ritz at 3 a.m. According to Jack, he was out of the room when Olive mistook his bottle of mercury syphilis treatment for a sleeping potion. Jack and her doctors attempted to induce vomiting, but Olive died in agony five days later. The press had a field day with the strange story, accusing Olive and Jack of being drug addicts who frequently attended champagne and cocaine orgies. Others suggested that Jack may have killed Olive for insurance money. But Jack himself paints a very tragic picture in the September 13, 1920 issue of the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. She kept continually calling for me. I was beside her day and night until her death. The physicians held out hope for her until the last moment, until they found her kidneys paralyzed. She was conscious, and she said she would get better and go home to her mother. It's all a mistake, darling Jack, she said. But I knew she was dying. She was kept alive only by hypodermic injections during the last 12 hours. I was the last one she recognized. I asked her how she was feeling, and she answered, Pretty weak, but I'll be all right in a little while. Don't worry, darling. Those were her last words. As touching as this story is, there's a strong possibility that ingesting mercury would have potentially corroded Olive's vocal cords. It is impossible to know if these words are Olive's or Jack's. But according to some, Olive would go on to speak to people from beyond the grave. Her ghost returned to the New Amsterdam, the only place she was ever truly happy. Despite her tragic fate, Olive's ghost is said to be more mischievous than malevolent. She steals walkie-talkies and loves to flirt with men backstage, only to disappear moments later. And if some stories are to be believed, she occasionally takes these dalliances a step further. Coming up, Olive takes a lover from beyond the grave. Now, back to the story. 
the New Amsterdam Theater's golden age was shattered by the Great Depression. There was not enough capital to maintain the lavish production values producers like Ziegfeld demanded, and the whole theater industry began to fold. The New Amsterdam Theater officially closed in 1936, occasionally hosting some productions and eventually reopening as a movie theater. The roof garden that had been home to the Midnight Frolic was converted to a rehearsal space. But Times Square was going downhill fast. The theaters around the New Amsterdam were converted into burlesque halls, saloons, and sex shops, and the area became dangerous to frequent at night. In 1960, New York Times writer Milton Bracker described the New Amsterdam's address, 214 West 42nd Street, between 7th and 8th Avenues, as the worst block in the city. 2,300 crimes occurred in that one block in 1984 alone, with an average of 1.26 severe felonies, like rape and murder, per day. The ceiling of the theater collapsed, letting years of rain and dirty snow into the main auditorium. Two feet of standing water filled the basement, and the opulent orchestra and mezzanine sections of the theater were covered in mushrooms the size of dinner plates. Sixty years after its initial closure, the New Amsterdam was a ruin. Dinah's boyfriend, Omar, had told her that he was taking her to Broadway. She had expected the bright lights of the Great White Way, dinner at Sardi's, and a show. She'd pictured elegant costumes and show-stopping dance numbers, something she could brag about at school on Monday. Instead, he'd taken her to a ruin. There were no performances here, just a bare stage and threadbare seats. Dust coated every surface. It was somehow colder inside than outside. When they moved from the lobby to the main theater, she discovered why. The orchestra section was covered in dirty snow. It fluttered from a hole in the roof. She was more than a little disappointed. Omar, on the other hand, was beaming. He told her that he'd done her one better than a Broadway show. Now she was the star of her own Broadway stage. It was sweet, if a little misguided. He scooped her up and ran down the aisles. The carpets were covered in dark black splotches. The air stank of rot. But she couldn't help but laugh as the seats blurred around her. He bounded through the mini snowdrift and placed her gently on the stage. The boards were warped. Dinah stepped gingerly toward the center. The floors creaked and groaned, having forgotten how to carry weight. Omar whooped and cheered from the front row. She took a small bow, then a bigger one. She played with her fur-edged parka, wrapping it around her like a starlet. One of the spotlights flickered on and off intermittently. She squinted against the light, trying to focus on Omar's smiling face. She couldn't see him anymore, the light surging around her. The rig above her head started to shake. Dinah took a step back. The wood underneath her foot snapped. She screamed as her leg went through the stage. Despite her best efforts, she was firmly stuck. She could see jagged edges of wood sticking into her skin. 
She didn't have the strength or the stomach to pull herself out. She called Omar. He didn't answer. The wooden slats began to shake and rumble. The wood and rusted nails dug further into her skin. She could not hold back her screams of anguish, but the rumbling was drowning her out. Women came from all directions. Their feet hit the boards, pattering ever closer to her. They wore shimmering clothes that caught the glint of the spotlight, feathers extending from their perfectly coiffed hair. Dinah covered her head with her hands. The movement stopped. Dinah opened her eyes slowly. The women were still there, standing in a line to her left and right. They looked out into the audience, but Dinah couldn't see anything except the bright, shining spotlight. Dinah felt the floor around her for soft spots. The boards were covered in mold, slightly soft under her hands. She brought her fist down near her leg, breaking the wood. She pulled the uneven pieces of wood out of her leg, slowly. Dinah couldn't look as she slid the rusted metal nails out. She let them drop down into the hole she'd made in the stage. Her skin burned. Her blood dripped onto the rest of the stage, turning the snow crimson. Dinah stood up, her body shaking as her nerves caught fire. The women watched her with sunken eyes. No one reached to help her. Their smiles were painted, all showbiz. No sincere joy behind them at all. They moved as one unit, poised for a performance that had ended decades before. She watched them waste away in front of her, their costumes dimming, their skin fading to yellowish green, sequins dropping like rain. Dinah heard Omar laughing. The lights were too bright. She needed to find her footing on solid ground again. But when she descended from the stage, she saw that Omar wasn't alone anymore. A woman in a sheer costume was standing next to him. Dark hair, big eyes, nothing short of gorgeous. Dinah could feel power radiating off the other woman. She was hypnotizing. A spider luring you into her web before she sucked the life from your paralyzed body. Omar was already trapped. His eyes were starting to glaze over. He could not hear Dinah as she tried to get his attention. He was spellbound, entranced by this woman and her strange allure. Dinah reached out to the woman, but her hand went right through her. The other woman's head turned slowly to face her. She introduced herself as Olive and asked to be left alone. She was terribly busy with her present company. Olive touched Omar. Her hands materialized as they touched his skin, glowing with the contact. She was resplendent. It terrified Dinah. The lights in the room became brighter and brighter until the glass covering them shattered, raining down on the stage and the audience of three.
cuts dotted Omar's cheek, but he didn't react. Dinah's own skin was littered with marks, but it was nothing compared to the pain in her legs. She tried to touch Olive again, but her hands passed through the other woman's pale skin just like before. Omar's body began to shake. He looked small, frail. Dinah left his side, heading for the stage. She crawled on the creaking floors until she found a nail jutting out of the rotten boards. Dinah yanked it out of the wood. She drove the nail straight through Olive's fingers as they rested on Omar's cheek. Olive screamed. Dinah pulled the nail out. One ragged hole glistened with blood. Omar stepped back, his cheek bleeding. Stunned, Dinah tried to reach for him, stammering an apology, but he turned away from her, frightened. The rigging of the lights shook. Dinah reached for Omar's hand. He wouldn't take it. Omar headed towards the stage, wanting to get his own bow on Broadway. A see-through woman stood behind him. She placed a finger to her lips and winked at Dinah. Dinah raced toward the stage. She dove straight for Omar. The rigging fell. The world went loud and then quiet. A strangled gasp left her lungs, only to die in the blackness, punctured only by the moon on the softly falling snow in the orchestra section. She lay in the darkness for what felt like hours. When she staggered to her feet, limbs screaming, Omar was gone. Dinah had the worst crick in her neck. She tried to straighten out to roll the muscles, but they were locked, frozen at an impossible angle. Olive was in the wings. She gave Dinah a single clap of applause. She'd been growing bored with her current company. If she couldn't have Omar, Dinah wasn't a terrible diversion till her leading man showed up. Dinah brought her hands to her chest. She didn't have a heartbeat anymore. The early 1990s saw a concentrated attempt to clean up Times Square. The 42nd Street Development Corporation was formed with the explicit purpose of restoring the dilapidated theaters. They partnered with the Walt Disney Company, whose first Broadway foray, Beauty and the Beast, was looking for a permanent home. Disney hired over 400 engineers, plasterers, painters, and technicians to restore the new Amsterdam to Hertz and Talent's original vision. The scale of restoration needed for the new Amsterdam meant that it wouldn't be ready in time for Beauty and the Beast. But the theater reopened in 1997 for the premiere of the animated film version of Hercules. That same year, Julie Taymor's stage adaptation of Disney's The Lion King opened at the New Amsterdam. It would be the highest grossing Broadway musical of all time. The Lion King would be followed by adaptations of Mary Poppins in 2006 and Aladdin in 2014. The Ziegfeld's former office tower and roof garden were converted to the offices of Disney Theatrical Productions in 2008. 
You might think the bright colors and dazzling show tunes from Elton John, Tim Rice, and Alan Menken would chase the spirits away. But if the security guards and executives who work at the New Amsterdam are to be believed, Olive Thomas is having the time of her afterlife. She plays instruments in the orchestra pit, moves props, mics, and walkie-talkies, and she's said to appear only to men when they're alone, sometimes pulling at their shirts. A security guard working during the 1997 renovation of the theater claims that he saw Olive dressed in a green gown and beaded headdress. She passed by him at center stage, he said, before blowing him a kiss and disappearing through the wall onto 41st Street. Whether she appears as a glamorous vision or an unseen force for backstage chaos, the New Amsterdam's most tragic chorus girl isn't taking her final curtain call anytime soon. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on New Amsterdam Theater, amongst the many sources we used, we found the work of the Theater Historical Society of America and the urban policy magazine City Journal extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now, Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lildy Ritter and Jennifer Richet, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>